I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Hi listeners, this is Esme here with an apology and a correction. I'm adding this into this episode in May 2021. Um, In the Hello Mallory episode, we discuss racial identity development and particularly the work of Dr. William Cross, a psychologist, on his um, theories of nigrescence, um, the development of Black identity over the lifespan. And in this, Google failed me, and I mentioned specifically that I thought it was interesting that William Cross was a white man who did this work, and he was not. We got an extremely helpful letter that I would like to read here in full um, as you go into this episode. So... Uh, I discovered your podcast a few weeks ago and have just listened to the Hello Mallory episode. You mentioned the work of William Cross. He is my uncle. Thinks it's important to tell you that he is indeed African-American. Those that study the diaspora know that many African-Americans are white presenting due to the miscegenation of the slavery era. And many members of my family, including my uncle, Dr. Cross, are such. He is indeed the descendant of enslaved people from Delaware and Virginia. Enjoy the podcast and hope you will make this correction on a future episode. I think the erasure of blackness, particularly for a man whose life work is around racial identity, is not something you'd want to perpetuate, however accidentally. Thanks, ladies. BSC forever. Lee Cross. So thank you so much, Lee, for writing. And so graciously, you definitely could have called us out a little harder there. I appreciate your kindness. And um, we absolutely do not want to contribute to the erasure of blackness. So love this correction. Love your uncle's work. And I hope you all enjoy the episode. Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book 14. Hello, Mallory. Well, hello, Mallory. (laughs) Okay, so let's get into our one-sentence summaries. Mine is, in Hello, Mallory, Mallory says, see you next Tuesday to the BSC and forms a rival babysitting club with her new BFF, Jessie. Mine is, nuanced discussion of race is central in the Eldest Pike's charming debut novel. Mm. So earnest (laughs) and wholesome. (laughs) Mine is gasp. A black family moves to Stony Brook and everyone freaks out, but Mallory gets a new best friend. Yay, Pikes, for not being outwardly racist. (laughs) It was either that or apparently Mallory's hair is not red, so I decided to go with the one that includes (laughs) Jesse. Yeah, I told you guys. Why is that setting to me? I had the same reaction. But before we get into this, we should probably introduce the members of the podcast. I'm Annie Chicala, a freelance writer. I'm a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. And I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual and I like health food. I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. If you want to learn more about us and how we know each other, you can check out our prologue episode. It's also great if you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help people find the show. Um, and we also love to hear from you. So you can write to us at stuckinstonybrook at gmail.com or saddle up to our Instagram at stuckinstonybrook. Very appropriate horse reference for our Mallory <laughs> book. Well played. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, before we started the podcast, uh, an early quarantine activity that Emily and I engaged in was building one of those 
fill in the blank playlists for Spotify and we called our playlist Mallory Loves Horses and now we get to hear about it in the book, mm-hmm. which is really nice. Wait, this just happened? Uh, before the yeah. podcast. Before we started the podcast, we called a playlist Mallory Loves Horses. Before Stuck in Stony Brook. Nothing that had to do with Mallory. No. It was like one of those like day one is this, day two is, you know, day oh, two so is a song you like to dance to. They weren't all like horse songs. No. None of them uh, were, in uh, fact, I think. Yeah. Should we begin? Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Let's begin. <laughs> That's a good idea. I was thinking that a lot happens in this book and that we might want to give just a general overview of the plot, even though we don't always do that before we jump into the specific things. Great. And you do the plot. Sure. <clears throat> so there's this girl named Mallory, and she is one of the Pike kids. In fact, she's the oldest Pike kid. And for a while, you know, in the books leading up to this book, Mallory's kind of always around when they're babysitting the Pikes, and she's kind of like a babysitting helper, I would mm-hmm. say. Um, and now that Stacy is gone, they need some extra help with their workload. So the BSC decides to kind of consider Mallory as a member, of, as like an official member of the BSC. But through this, I mean, the BSC is kind of, they're kind of jerky. <laughs> it was, it was, for me, it was interesting seeing um, what Mallory thought about the characters from like an outside perspective that's not a member. So that was kind of cool. And then, so that's kind of the, the A plot. The B plot would be more about Mallory's developing friendship with the new girl at school, Jesse Ramsey, who her family is black and they just moved from New Jersey and kind of Anna Martin does for, you know, 1988, I think a really good job at, you know, showing these like feelings about being black in a, you know, predominantly white neighborhood and just like, like kind of like bringing up the issue of, of race relations and how, you know, this is, it is, I feel like this is probably the biggest like serious topic that, Mm-hmm. The BSC has has covered um, up to book fourteen. Yeah, at least the biggest like sociological mm-hmm. serious topic. I mean, I think they've certainly done a bunch about. Obviously, there was Mimi's stroke and a bunch about divorce and things that are serious but affect people more one on one or only one on one, right? Um, but in terms of like a societal construct, I think this is the deepest dive we've gotten so far. Everything's a social yeah. construct. You know what I mean. I don't mean social construct. <laughs> Fine. Uh, sociopolitical. Uh, yeah, I'm having a hard time with word finding today. That's fine. You don't need a word. Okay. I got it. You know what I mean. Uh-huh. Not personal. <laughs> it's also personal, but it's not only personal. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, she, eventually they join the BSC, both Mallory and Jesse which is the very end of this book, which is very exciting. So but not without a lot of tests yeah. that we'll get into. Yeah, there's a lot of tests. They're, they're a little rougher on Mallory and Jesse than they are on Logan. Well, Mallory specifically, they're not so rough on Jesse. Kind of bitchy, honestly. They're horrible. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I try to draw the digestive system. The digestive system? <laughs> the digestive system. That's a whole other thing. Why can't Claudia say digestive? <laughs> Not only does she pronounce it once wrongly, like she says it twice. Like, why would she 
Claudia, like, they make her out to be really stupid in this book. Yeah. I mean, if we're going with our ADHD hypothesis, it's not something that's particularly interesting to her. So she's not going to put a lot of time into remembering the details. Or maybe she actually does have dyslexia and she's having letter reversal issues. Mm -hmm. Doesn't necessarily mean she's stupid. Yeah, it does. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Come for Anne, everybody. Don't cancel me. Anne said that one. Um, (laughs) Should we start with psych stuff? Yeah. Well, I think, Anne, you pointed out what I thought was the the best thing in this book, which is Anna Martin's treatment of of Jesse um, and her kind of racial identity development. So this is a whole field in psychology of kind of how do young people and then adults come to terms with an understanding of their racial identity in a multicultural society like the United States? And how do we come to learn what is whiteness, what is blackness? Um, And I was impressed with a couple different things throughout. One was that I think Anna Martin did a good job of showing both overtly racist behavior, as Emily sort of noted, as well as microaggressions and just um, smaller signals that Jesse would get that Stony Brook is a really white space. And so toward the beginning, there's the girls. Um, it's in chapter two at in sixth grade at Stony Brook Middle School. Rachel Robinson, who is the name of a Judy Bloom character. So there's an mm-hmm. interesting crossover there. She's from just as long as we're together. And here's to you, Rachel Robinson. So don't know if that was on purpose. Um, Rachel Robinson and some girl named Sally and some girl named Anita in Mallory's class, who she's not really friends with, are really um, kind of taken aback by Jesse actively say she doesn't belong here. Where do you think she moved from? Africa. Um, and they say some really, really racist things. Yeah. Um, it, they they oh, say ahead. like, is her name like, what was it? Mumbabwe? Mobabwe is that Mobabwe. her real name? Yeah, they just make up yeah. something that sounds so, vaguely African. I have in yeah. my notes, page 13, Rachel is a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> well, but I kind of don't want to, I don't want to um, ignore Rachel's context, right? Like, yes, that is bitchy and racist, but I think this is a problem that we do a lot in America is that we say like, oh, well, that one person is a bitch as opposed to like, that person mm-hmm. is being socialized in white supremacy and she's just saying what... We're all being taught to think, right? So I don't, I don't want to blame Rachel too hard. Like it's a, it's a much bigger problem than her, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I thought it was really realistic how Mallory sort of froze in that situation. You know, she and Jesse aren't friends yet at this point. She liked her. They shared a smile, and she was excited that there was a new girl, and she was already thinking like, I've never had a real best friend, and maybe you know my only chance in this kind of insular Stony Brook place is a new girl. So maybe, maybe here she comes and she's like invested in her, but they don't actually have a relationship yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she has a sense that like what these girls are saying is wrong and she pushes back a little bit, but then she's kind of stuck and she freezes and doesn't really know how to proceed. And she doesn't endorse it, but she also doesn't actively, you know, in 2020 terms, practice anti-racism in that moment, which she's 11 and she's been raised in super white Stony Brook. So I, I would think that would have been unrealistic for her to do. So I thought it was um, it was a nice moment where you're still on Mallory's side. It's still clear that what these girls are saying is wrong and is is racist. And we're not seeing some like 
what I think would have been out of development um, heroism from Mallory to say like, wait, you shouldn't say that like that. It just wouldn't have fit. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was a really nuanced portrayal. I don't know. How did that sit with you guys? I mean, I think that what you just described, I think what's interesting about how Anna Martin, first of all, Mallory's way more spunky than I remember her to be. Yeah, I really liked her. Yeah. <laughs> but I think you can tell in that moment when she froze, she like knew what the right thing to do was, which mm-hmm. I thought was cool that uh, we knew that already. And it, that comes pretty early on in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, our elementary school was pretty, was pretty fight. Um, I don't remember. There's, there were only like a handful of black kids in our elementary school. Yeah, I wouldn't say it was super white, but it was, it was Asian, Latino, and white. Like there, there weren't a lot of black kids yeah. specifically. I mean, that's interesting because from my perspective, it was mostly white. Yeah. Like having like ten other Asian kids didn't count to me as being like a big a lot you know um, yeah i think it's just comparing it to how stony brook is being described do you know what i mean oh, yeah. that, that's what i'm thinking like there was like claudia is the japanese person yeah. and, and I that think, was not the case it, in sacramento <laughs> like and rick rick chow is right. the chinese person right <laughs> exactly Exactly. So, yeah, I'm thinking, you know, there are a lot of places in the U.S. today that when we say predominantly white are really predominantly white. You know, mm-hmm. they're saying that Jesse is the only black girl in the grade. And it doesn't sound like there's a lot of Asian or Latino or certainly native kids. We've, we've already talked about how, the, how all of the Native Americans are gone from Stony Brook. Um, so I think that there is a difference in, in that particular piece. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I, I just thought that was really realistic and nice. And then we get other overt racism late, much later in the book when Jesse and Mallory are talking on Jesse's front stoop and Jesse's little sister Becca is playing with her totally awesome sounding bubble machine that makes really giant bubbles. And a little girl across the street comes out and is interested and comes over. And then her mom calls like, Amy, come back here and calls her, calls her back in the house. Um I thought it was interesting that Amy has never appeared before. (laughs) Like, she's not a kid they babysit for. Yeah. Does she just, like, I guess Anna Martin doesn't want to make any of our beloved charges overtly racist, so she has to put a new Mm -hmm. neighbor in there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which makes sense, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. they don't, they clearly don't babysit for, like, every kid in Stony Brook. All these kids are in different grades and have classes full of other kids. Mm-hmm. But it is funny that she's across the street from Stacy's old house. Jesse's family moves into Stacy's house on Fawcett Avenue. Um, so it seems like we would have seen Amy before. But mm-hmm. yeah, I do agree that it was important to leave the racist people, not people that we're still interacting with. Yeah. yeah. But then she also has some really nice examples of microaggressions too, where um, when she first comes to the Pike's house... Claire's about to say, are you here to clean the house? Um, And Mallory cuts her off um, because Claire's five and hasn't really interacted with many black people. And they did hire house cleaners one time before a party and they happen to be black. Um, And I, I think that that was a, you know, people, at least certainly in elementary school, we were not talking about microaggressions in 1988. Um, And I think that was just a really great example how, you know, we're consistently told and shown that the Pikes are like open, 
kind people and that they're not, you know, the, the moral of this is that they are not being taught to be racist. And because it's the 80s, they were probably raised in kind of a colorblind consciousness of, you know, we love everybody equally, which has many of its own problems. And so showing that sort of hesitation, um, there's another part where Mallory doesn't, is like, well, maybe, you know, you've had some problems because, and um, Jesse says, you can say it, I'm black um, on page 70. And Mallory doesn't really know how to approach it. Um, And there's another part where they say like when Mrs. Pike says hello to Jesse, she sees like a tiny bit of surprise on her face, but then she greets her really warmly. So I think there there was a lot of really nuanced and subtle ways that Anna Martin highlighted um, both the systemic racism and the overt racism that would be taking place in a small, mostly white town like Stony Brook. Mm-hmm. And I was left thinking... This is really interesting. I'm going to interrupt you for a second just to... I. We're talking about a lot of the same things today, but Uh I was thinking a lot about what the book, how the book deals with like the promise of multiculturalism and like liberal values. And I think Mm -hmm. that you're right that she that she lays out different layers in which racism works and how it kind of circumscribes certain interactions. But I think I'm going to take a little bit of a different take on sort of like where she lands on like, what do we do about it? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, sure. Continue. (laughs) And I actually don't, uh, you know, in terms of the developmental psychology piece of it, I'm agnostic to that. I'm just, I I think it's like, how is she describing the landscape that is there? Mm -hmm. And I think you're probably going to go more toward what is the aspiration and what is the goal, which Mm -hmm. I think I think Jesse and Mallory as 11-year-olds in the world are probably agnostic too as well, right? Yeah. And I don't think, I don't think, uh, yeah. So I think that's just describing what's there versus what's the underlying um, kind of hope for it. So, yeah, so there's there's a bunch of theories of racial development, identity development. And what's really interesting to this is, uh, you know, studying developmental psychology, I had always heard these names and learned about them, but I hadn't Googled these people. And what, uh, just like a funny thing is that one of the biggest theories of used to be, the, the original name for it was nigrescence, black identity development. <laughs> um, and uh, later it was just called black identity development. And um, now it's been generalized to um, kind of people of color, racial identity development in the United States was really s- described and studied most by a white dude, William Cross, who's still um, alive and um, has won many awards for social justice and cultural psychology. And then white racial identity development um, is has been described and studied by a black woman named Janet Helms. And so they kind of traded, um, which I think is interesting and sort of um, has a funny uh, sense to it. I certainly think that Janet Helms would be well poised to describe kind of the the process of watching white people grapple with their whiteness, probably better than a white person since a lot of that is invisible. But it was interesting to me. And I looked for articles, given that it's 2020, sort of criticizing Bill Cross and saying like this should this work should have been done by a black person. It seems like he has been legitimately embraced by black psychologists and he's won a bunch of awards from the Black Psychology Journal. And it, I think that he he did he was a white dude that did it right, basically. Um, but he's emeritus now and um But what was interesting to me about many of these theories, both the kind of black identity development and the white racial identity development, is that they started 
similar to what we've talked about of the problems with like Myers-Briggs versus Big Five. They started as stages, like you progress from one to the other with like a, a, a g- the good end stage being one of a commitment to like having a good racial identity for yourself and also valuing people from other races. Um, and they've evolved to be um, more dimensional and something that can change and can go back and forth during your lifetime, depending on where you are in the circumstances. And so I was thinking a lot about Jessie coming from Oakley, New Jersey, which she describes as super um, diverse and her street with all of her family members on it being mostly black and she has her cousins nearby and they're all kind of in this multi-generational family system. And then her school, she describes as like half black and half white, maybe a little bit more black than white. And her ballet school being that very balanced as well, having sort of a um, kind of racial pride orientation with also being comfortable around people from other backgrounds mm-hmm. and then moving to this super white place and having to re-examine her own kind of identity in relation to her blackness mm-hmm. um, and the sort of foundation that her family has provided for her. And then we also see Mallory's development of you know being totally oblivious to race as many white people are and not being aware of it, having minimal experiences with Black people, that colorblindness orientation that was actively propagated in the 80s and in like children's literature and in schools and in everything else, and moving to being able to see the racism around her, even the, you know, the embarrassment over Claire asking if she was there to clean the house, which Claire doesn't quite ask, but, um, you know, seeing the both subtle and less subtle um, experiences of racism around her awakening to kind of her role as a white person in having to confront some of these things and Mm -hmm. moving from sort of assuming that she's non-racist to a more, you know, again, it might be generous to say an anti-racist, but at least a more aware place um, through her understanding of Jesse. So those were kind of the pieces I was thinking about. And there's a, there's a great, um, Dr. Uh, Rihanna Elise Anderson is a um, professor at University of Michigan who's created this clinical intervention for Black kids and their families called Embrace. It's um, engaging, managing, and bonding through race, where they get together and they have conversations about what it means to be Black in the United States. And um, people now are studying what's called racial socialization. And so how do we teach kids about their race and about the way they interact with their race in the world. And there's basically four large buckets of how people can do this. Um, two of them are like active promotion of distrust or colorblindness, like we live in a post-racial society. And both of those are associated with poor outcomes for kids. So poor adjustment, poor grades, lower self-esteem, or you can instill racial and cultural pride in your history and you can still prep for bias in the world, but not in promote active distrust. So we, you know, we've talked a lot and seen a lot of videos, of course, of like black parents prepping their sons and daughters of how to drive a car, you know, and what to do if you get pulled over by the police and how to act in systems of authority that have traditionally and, and may still most often oppress you. That's preparation for bias, but it's not necessarily saying like, everyone's out to get you. You can't trust any people of other races. Um, and, and she's found that 
you know, promoting those two, that kind of active preparation for bias and racial pride serves as protective factors. And I think we're seeing some hints of that from the Ramseys already. And I'm really curious to see what more will come out once we actually get to hear it from Jesse's perspective. Um, I was just saying, that's so fascinating to me. I was thinking about this stuff from the kind of like social theory angle, because I think that there's a way that the book is probably unknowingly navigating like a kind of old debate in within feminist thought around like the promise of liberalism, right? There's this idea that like it's frequently attributed to the sort of white feminist liberal paradigm that like the values of equality and freedom are like good enough on their own. And that the kind of goal is to like agitate for their extension and that like that they're, kind of in the, in the abstract, they do enough work to help, you know, build a democratic society or to, to be sort of pillars against which we can measure democratic successes or failures or things like that. Mm-hmm. And then there's like a huge um, tradition of criticism of that sort of belief in those, the abstract, the, the force of those abstract values that comes from both the like Marxist feminist tradition and the black feminist tradition, which are intimately intertwined. And so there's this like other concept. One version is like a standpoint theory, which borrows from the Marxist um, analysis of class that says like, right. Marxist says famously that like the ruling ideas in any era are the ideas of the ruling class, but that where the dialectic happens is when the exploited class comes to consciousness and understands actually that they're being exploited. And so that like the promises of the economic arrangement are promises that can only be made good on from the position of the ruling class, not from the position of the exploited class. And so the, the, class consciousness is an achievement, right? It's not inevitable. Um, and so mm-hmm. that standpoint is where the the perspective from which you can actually see exploitation, right? You can't see that capitalism is exploitative if you're the owner. You can only see it if you're the worker and mm-hmm. you look around and you see that we're, we're doing all these things that make us, you know, most human in our animal functions and most animal in our human functions is the other famous phrase. And so feminists were like, hey, what about if we take the sexual division of labor as the kind of primary class division? And then like, what do we like, how does then a patriarchal society look different when we look from the perspective of women's work in labor and women's exploitation. And then black feminists were like, what if we look specifically from the position of black women? Like how does, what do, what do kind of liberal values look like then? Right. And that, so mm-hmm. that it's a sort of epistemic claim that like we're th- about knowledge, right. That like oppressed classes, live under kind of two knowledge regimes, right? They have knowledge of their own culture, their own communities, but they also have knowledge of the oppressor's world, obviously. But oppressors don't know shit about the people that they oppress, right? So there's this like blindness that um, impedes kind of the ability of a a minority, uh, of a majority ruling race or class or whatever to see like what the world really looks like in this kind of robust way. And I think, um, you know, that moment where Jesse says to the girls when they finally invited her to the meeting and she says, look, you guys might have a problem with clients because I'm black and all the girls, like none of the girls had 
thought about that, not because they're, as you've mentioned, like explicitly anti-racist mm-hmm. or anything at all really having to do with their relationship to blackness. It's because they've literally never had to think about blackness before or whiteness before. Right. right? And so like they're so that's a moment where like Jesse has some knowledge of their world that they lack. Mm-hmm. In, in spite of the fact that it's theirs, right? And like, absolutely. And she's sort of like teaching them something about the space that they occupy and the identities that they, you know, the identity that they move through that they don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think, on the one hand, that engages the kind of like that dynamic or that conversation engages with the sort of radical of like kind of like Jesse's positionality, but they also fall back on the kind of liberal promise, right? That like, they're like, oh, give it time, you know, hearts and minds, like eventually people will come to bring you food, right? And Mallory has this whole internal monologue when she's at the Ramsey's house watching Jesse's brother and sister with her about remembering the stories Stacy told when Stacy mm-hmm. moved from New York. And she's like, yeah, of course I miss New York City, but everyone here is so nice. We had a welcome wagon. People brought food mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And Mallory's like, this isn't happening to Jesse's family. And like, how do I make sense of this? And then when they're, when Jesse's making, you know, showing the girls this part of their world that they haven't ever had occasion to notice before, they ultimately kind of all together seem to be sort of optimistic about like what's to come, right? They're like, well, people are warming up the idea, right? Like the Johansson's, brought banana bread and we're going to have dinner. And like, it, you'll see eventually like people will come around and we'll all be, mm-hmm. you know, happy neighborly equals. And I think that the, the kind of radicalness of that moment of that standpoint, you know, knowledge exchange happening is really undercut in the end by this kind of romanticization of, um, you know, like, give it time. People just have to get to use the idea that you're equal to them. Mm-hmm. It's like kind of, um, I mean, in, in one sense, it makes sense for the time and like the age of the girls, but it's also, mm-hmm. it does, it does, it is a little bit in tension with, I think some of the more kind of radical moments of social, um, like awareness and description. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was yeah. thinking about reading this book. <laughs> what do you, <laughs> Anne, as our as our senior Japanese correspondent, what what do you make of Claudia's senior. position <laughs> in this situation? Like what, I, you know, it's really interesting to me. And I think obviously, you know, there's a ton of scholarship in the way that, you know, uh, you know, from the model minority myth to a lot of other layers, how Asian American people are able to navigate in ways that black Americans are not. But it's interesting to me how little anything Rachel has come up with Claudia prior other than she's beautiful. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm just interested in any thoughts you had about kind of her experience compared to Jesse's experience. If it's just that the family's been in Stony Brook for a really long time. So people are used to them or if it has to do with her Asian-ness versus blackness or any thoughts that you had as this came about. Yeah. Cause it's, you know, at the end of the book, Claudia says, we don't care that you're, you're black. After all, I'm Japanese. Well, Japanese American. No one minds that, you know. Mm-hmm. Which is like, you know, I think she that's like she meant it as a nice way, as in, but also like she's totally oblivious to the fact that they're two completely different things. Right. Um, you know, it's interesting because 
you know, I grew up Japanese American. Probably like Land Park is probably is pretty white. Mm-hmm. The neighborhood we grew up, and I was, you know, there weren't until we got to like middle and high school. There were a lot more Asian. There was, or you know, it was a lot more diverse. The elementary school is pretty, as we just mentioned, was very predominantly mm-hmm. white. But I, you know, it's interesting because I didn't start making Asian other Asian friends until college, mm. um, because I was friends. I met you when I was like, you know, in second grade, and just because I made a lot of my friendships in elementary school, a lot of my friends were were white. I know, and I think as I got older in high school, and I like other middle schools combined into and funneled into this bigger high school. I saw that there were a lot of other Japanese American girls who were very close and met, you know, doing Japanese American social things at the church mm-hmm. or playing basketball or whatever. And I was like completely left out of that. And it's, um, so I always felt not like upset about that, but just, I just something I noticed. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to college, there's this thing where I suddenly had the realization that when people meet me for the first time, they, they see I'm mm-hmm. Asian, mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. like this weird thing. Cause I went to school with all the same people for so long. It was kind of that colorblind thing. It's like, mm-hmm. Oh, we've just known Anne since she was eight. And like, right. I was just, Anne. I wasn't like someone didn't meet me and be like, Oh, she's Asian. Mm-hmm. And therefore, and that's how I remember this person. You know? And that right. was kind of a weird thing. And something that, as I moved to New York, I noticed that I started to make even more Asian friends because it just becomes this like, I don't know, it becomes this like um, commonality or something that you feel comfortable with to become friends with someone else who has like maybe a similar upbringing or understands things culturally that maybe your other friends don't. Mm-hmm. But I also have, I feel like I'm very, I don't have a lot of hangups with being Asian or Japanese American. Um, or I don't feel any, like, uh, I was treated any differently, really. Um, but I have a lot of other Asian friends who were raised in other towns and cities who have a completely different experience than me. And yeah. they definitely have a little bit more of, like, you know, like, I have a lot of Asian friends who are much more, um, you know, they're a little bit more heavily into activism for other Asian Americans, or they feel like, you're underrepresented and you know, all those things were true. Um, but I never felt that mm-hmm. because I think of the way I was raised and where I grew up. Oh no. And I also think the fact that my parents were probably a whole generation older than a lot of these, um, of my like Japanese American peers made a difference mm-hmm. because I, like I've mentioned before on the podcast, my parents were like in internment camps they were very young. They were like two, but like they, their upbringing was way different. They didn't like have this like normal childhood experience. They didn't go to college. It was like much more of like keep your head down, survive mode mm-hmm. rather than like, you know, excel, I guess, mentality of like you can do this. So in that sense, I always felt a little bit different too from like my my like fellow Japanese American peers just mm-hmm. raised differently, you know. Yeah, well, and I think what you say about that experience of 
you know, initial colorblindness is really mm-hmm. a- along with this Bill Cross and later uh, Frank Worrell, who's currently at, at Cal and the education department sort of expanded this theory of, of people of color, racial identity development that, um, you know, that sort of de-emphasis and just like, it, it's not that, um, you know, it was necessarily bad or good. It was just, a, it was a relatively small fact of who you were, like the things mm-hmm. that we would talk about about you would be more that you're obsessed with candy and you were good at soccer, you know, um, mm-hmm. as opposed to that you were Asian and that, that mm-hmm. sort of de-emphasis and then encountering, you know, you can see that kind of like sort of racial awakening across college and your mm-hmm. early career of encountering people that had experienced more active forms of exclusion and racism. I think you're, you know, the main racism that uh, I've I've bore witness to you, especially in New York, is like weird, weirdly uh, Asianified catcalling um, <laughs> where oh, like yeah. people yeah. shout ridiculous things that I'm not going to repeat on the podcast at you because you're Asian, mm-hmm. um, which, of course, is an intersection of both, uh, you know, white supremacy and patriarchy and this just lovely (laughs) little soup song. Nice mix. Yeah, nice, nice, delish. Uh, But I think that um, that kind of commitment and and sort of commitment to your racial racial identity is exactly sort of what Jesse's experiencing, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I don't think that Jesse's racial identity was that salient to her in Oakley because it was a, you know, half and half leaning black place. Um, that she was not forced to think about it in the same way as she's forced to think about it in Stony Brook. And so it's like an additional layer. I think, though, that what Anne's describing is like what we're getting from Claudia also, because Jesse, like, it's not like Jesse doesn't know that she's black, which is not to say that that's what you're saying, Anne, but like having a sense of the context being a bit more balanced in terms of like numbers doesn't mean that she's not aware of like how blackness and whiteness like shape her existence right like she and she's already narrating the fact that like because there were equal people like equal numbers of white girls and black girls in her ballet class was why she felt comfortable enough to do ballet, mm-hmm. which implies some knowledge that like ballet is a, a typically historically white activity. And that like it might, it, that she was already going to be out of place unless she had the kind of unique context of being in a situation that was already a little bit more Absolutely. balanced in terms of race. So I think, I think that like confronting being a, a racial, like complete racial outsider is not exactly the same as like, no, like, I don't know, confronting white supremacy for the first time, if that makes sense. You're absolutely right. And I yeah. didn't, I didn't mean to apply that, that Jesse was like, I think Claudia was more like what Anne was describing. I didn't mean to imply that Jesse was like unaware of it, mm-hmm. I think, but needing to examine her relationship to it in a completely different way Mm -hmm. when she comes to Stony Brook. Mm -hmm. So like clearly that knowledge is there. And I think, you know, speaks to the Ramseys and the extended Ramsey family around, you know, conversations about that as she was growing up. Prep for bias stuff like you were talking about before. Yeah, exactly. And, and racial pride and cultural pride pieces. Um, I think that that is evident, but I think she's forced to encounter things differently in a day by day, moment to moment way mm-hmm. than she was in Oakley. You mm-hmm. know, I think her 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 basic sense of self and safety 
was better in Oakley. Yeah. Right. So she doesn't have to think Mm -hmm. about it over and over again in the same way as she does when confronted, confronted with all of these white people in Stony Brook. Yeah. And still, she's not surprised. It's just a different set of negotiations on on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really curious, Emily, what you thought of um, this moment that you already spoke to a little bit where Jesse says, you know, are you guys sure you want me to join? Because people haven't been great to me here. And so some of your customers might not like having a black babysitter. Um, and then they all kind of freeze for a minute. They, they get on a conversation about Alan Gray and Benny Ott, the Alan Gray of the sixth grade. And then Claudia is the one that brings it back to Jesse's question. So that's sort of relevant, I think, and says, we're getting off the subject. She said, what about Jesse's problem? Mm-hmm. And then it's, there was a moment of silence. No one wa- seemed to want to speak. At long last, Christy said, you know what I think? I think we'll just have to face the problem if it happens. It's hard for me to imagine it happening, though. I mean, I can't see any of our regular customers, the Newtons, my mom and Watson, the Barretts, the Perkinses, the Rodowskis. I can't see any of them saying they don't want Jesse to sit. If it does happen with anyone, though, I'll tell you one thing. I wouldn't sit for them either. You're crying. And I just, you know. Are you crying? I, right. <laughs> I'm not crying. Um, are you sure? I and, think you are. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, and then immediately, me neither, said Claudia, Marianne, and Dawn. Um, and then Jesse's like in awe, and it goes from there. So, it's a, I mean, it's a very sweet moment, especially in a children's book in 1988. But I was wondering if, um, you know, if you perceived a, a darker edge there of of any kind. I, You know, I, I, I think the... The positive gloss is that that's Christy utilizing her privilege, right? Mm-hmm. And kind of putting her business. Now I'm going to cry because this is the part that gets me is like her, like, this is her whole identity, right? Is her mm-hmm. business and her like entrepreneurial self, right? As he like capitalism. Look, she's crying about it. <laughs> I don't love capitalism. I love Christy Thomas and her ambition, you know, but this is like, this is a, this for Christy. This is everything, right? This right. is the... This is a really um, hugely symbolic sacrifice for her to say, like, yeah, no, I don't like we can lose jobs. We can lose customers. It doesn't matter to me. Yeah. Um, But then I know it could also have like a darker kind of white savior cast to it or various other. So I was just really curious sort of how you read that scene. Yeah. I mean, the thing that's interesting to me is like where like what is the. And social analysis implied in the response to the problem, right? Like, how do they cast what the problem is, like its directionality, um, like where it's housed, right? And they call it Jesse's problem, <laughs> not like the problem of our town being fucking racist, right? And like, <laughs> right. And and I, like I said before, I still think there's a kind of like latent belief that like we can change people's hearts and minds and this is like an like racism is an individual level problem about like individually held beliefs that can be changed um and so i I think in that sense it's like a it's it's like sweet and naive you know i i think jesse is a lot more cautiously optimistic about what will happen right she's like oh not everyone here is a like straight up to our face racist but like i think that she's understanding that like social exclusion or maybe i don't know maybe she's also sort of 
sanguine about the promise of liberalism. But like, I th- I think that the girls to me seem to genuinely believe that people aren't that bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and like, I don't really know. I think they might be kind of missing some of what she's saying about her experience. Well, I think it would be really weird if they didn't miss some of what she's saying about her experience. Yeah. You know, given given their life experience and they, they've just met this girl. I think that, you know, as we know, conversations about race and oppression, it's not like you have one conversation and it's done. Right. So, but like they're so like they're moment of solidarity comes like after the fact right they're like okay well we'll just wait and see if someone's racist and then if that happens like we'll stand with you in solidarity like against that racist act right um which i think is like a very like 80s way of thinking about what feminist solidarity is (laughs) um Mm -hmm. yeah I, i don't think it quite given that they're 11 like quite wades into white savior territory but i think that it does it is a pretty like basic um portrayal of like allyship that it that would be something that would be criticized in our context right that like it's like like performative allyship is something um like a term that might be you might encounter now for something like that yeah right but is it performative i don't know and how did you read that scene Sorry, I wasn't listening. I was looking at poor stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Now you guys know. (laughs) Listeners. Emily and I get all tied up in this stuff and Anne just like is off off doing something else. I I wanted to know what your impression was of that scene where the kind of one for all scene where Christy says, you know, if somebody doesn't want you babysitting for them, then I don't want to babysit for them. I let me just say back up really quick. I don't think that that act was an act of performative allyship but i think that like that theory of solidarity is one that there's a version of it that's criticized from the rubric of performative allyship is what gotcha. i gotcha yeah mm-hmm. yeah because i don't think it's performative i think she's mm-hmm. literally saying i won't sit for those people oh no, yeah like i, I want to put my money yeah. where my mouth is for sure but yeah. like i'm gonna wait and see what happens yeah i mean in the world universe of the bsc i don't see this is just them being supportive Mm-hmm. But also, like, they're they're young. They're kind of naive. They don't understand, you know, Anna Martin isn't going to get into the complexities of race relations in, in Hello Mallory. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> although I wish she would have. Um, I mean, yeah, I think it, she did more than, more than no, I would have thought. No, totally. Because since I completely forgot what this book was about, I was like, oh. This is like pretty progressive for 1988 young adult mm-hmm. series, but you know. Um, but one thing I did, I was thinking about was, you know, how Anna Martin has written both Claudia and Jesse as like they're kind of one of their main characteristics is something that is like opposite from what you would be expected. Mm-hmm. So like Claudia is Asian and she's bad at school. And Jesse is black, and she's a really good color right now. So it's like, in some ways, I'm like, well, that's cool. I mean, I think that's something that would was like important for young girls to to read and like relate to in a character, especially if you're Asian or black. But also, mm-hmm. it's just kind of like a convenient <laughs> like character development thing. Right. To Here, do. I'm going to avoid the trope by inverting it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. 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 
That's interesting. Um, Right. And you can see, you know, as they discussed in Claudia Kishi Club, like that, that's that is really powerful and really helpful Mm -hmm. to a lot of Asian kids who felt like they didn't fit into being, quote unquote, Asian enough in all of the right ways. And I know that that's true for black girls, too. Mm -hmm. Um, And that Jesse, you know, we'll talk more about how what a powerful symbol Jesse was. And, you know, was there was there something else that she could have done rather than just reversing it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I don't know, like, Claudia's also really good at origami. Actually, she probably is. She's she probably good is. at art. Yeah. <laughs> they just don't talk about that in the book. Yet. Yet. Dun, dun, dun. Is, that, is that, like, book 220? I don't know Claudia if I'm going to make it that far, guys. <laughs> Claudia and the origami competition. Oh, all right. What? Okay. Claudia and the insert Japanese thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of soy sauce. Oh, very good, Emily. <laughs> um, so, in terms of pop culture, there wasn't a lot going on. I mean, I, I am going to get into the horse stuff. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, that very good, Emily, was just so. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, so there is this very confusing passage in the book that makes no sense to me, and maybe you guys can help me make sense of it. But on page 62, this is like when they're being really shitty towards Mallory and asking her all these questions and her knowledge about children. Yeah, so so they're a little... You know, they're a little gun shy after the babysitter's agency episode, right? So they had this experience of inviting people to join the club that they did not screen at all appropriately. So now, even though they've babysat alongside Mallory for over a year and seen her on dozens of jobs with her her siblings, suddenly they have to come up with some kind of formal test to enter the babysitter's club. But that's some bullshit, though, because they already let Logan and Shannon into the club. Mm-hmm. Only as associate members, though. But yeah, you're totally right. They just observed them. They didn't give them a test. Mm -hmm. Well, they also justify it through their ageism, right? That Mallory's only 11. So it's really important that they know that she's mature enough. Uh, But the test includes uh, knowing when a baby starts teething. Which mm-hmm. Mallory's off by a month, and they're like wrong. Yeah, so well, to me that range. was like a sh- <laughs> yeah fundamental misunderstanding of development. Like it's not yeah. like kids are like uh, on the day of seven month birthday, yeah. a tooth pops out. Like it's <laughs> a range yeah. for all of those things. Yeah, uh, the, the difference between creeping and crawling. Mm-hmm. Uh, Can we not know that? Oh, is that real? Yeah, that's real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like they would be the stage. opposite. Yeah, well, we usually use crawling to describe creeping, um, colloquially. But just I don't know why. Sort of like I don't know if what they evoke the terms in like terms of yeah. imagery. Like I feel like creeping. Well, clearly, Emily would not pass the test. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Emily would contest the terms of the question. This is true. I've been in a trivia night with Emily, and she would contest. Yes. <laughs> and that, there's. I would like to push back on the question (laughs) (laughs) um so one of the things i kind of so like mallory has a chance to kind of show what she knows in this in this instance if someone wants to read this passage with me it's on page 62 um i'll be i'll be claudia oh yeah you mentioned that replied claudia 
I don't think that you didn't save Lucy's soy sauce, though, like you did. I hope not, I exclaimed. Soy sauce? Huh? Says Claudia. (laughs) At last, I thought something I really knew about that the girls didn't know much about at all. Soy sauce, I said, is a salty um, condiment for your food. Soy formula is a very gentle formula to give to babies who have trouble with milk. I should know. Okay. What the fuck? <laughs> so first of all, how? okay, so we're supposed to assume that Claudia does not know what soy sauce is. Well, maybe. So we are supposed to assume for sure that Claudia doesn't know what soy formula is, but maybe exactly. Mallory, like, explaining what soy sauce is, is like, she's assuming she's, that Claudia doesn't but, know what soy sauce is, but we're not supposed Mallory, to assume that. But Mallory is, is is explaining to a Japanese person what soy sauce is. Yeah, I think that's a racial microaggression, right? Mallory's yeah. like... Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's a very confusing passage. I mean, look, Claudia clearly didn't remember what Mallory had said a couple chapters ago about soy formula and or doesn't know about soy formula and soy milk, which to me is believable in 1988. Um and so the only well, how soy is that believable <laughs> that she okay. doesn't know about soy formula. No, but that she that she would use soy sauce to describe soy f- formula. So I'm not saying that was believable. I'm saying that she wouldn't know about soy formula or soy milk is believable. Mm-hmm. Then there's this leap that I agree with you is not <laughs> believable. So in sort of general cognitive psychology, she would then hang it on a soy thing that she knows about. But Mm -hmm. I can't imagine that that would be soy sauce, given, as you have artfully pointed out, she is indeed Japanese American. Well, also, if you continue that passage a little bit, Mallory goes, the girls were looking at me. I felt like saying, na 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 na, I know something you don't know. And then Claudia says, oh, in a small voice. So she's like, oh, you're right. Soy sauce is that salty thing. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, feel, I feel betrayed by Anna Martin. Yeah. All kinds of microaggressions be, in this book. Be yeah. honest. So the other thing I wanted to bring up was how um, Mallory and Jesse have a shared love of horses or horse books, right? Mm-hmm. But their friendship kind of begins by... Jesse noticing Mallory's books and like, she's like, Oh, you have this book. And then they trade a Morgan for Melinda and um, impossible. Charlie, they like switch these books. Oh yeah. Are those real books? Mm -hmm. They are real books. I look not. So then I started thinking about horses and it's very, you know, a lot of young girls, tweens, they, they love horses. I was not one of those people. As me, I remember you were moderately into horses. You kind of we had a lot of horse toys, mm-hmm. and then like, so what is it? Like, what drew you to horses? Okay, so this is a this is a personal question, not yeah, it's a, a personal question, larger question. Um, it's really hard for me to actively remember. I, well, so I liked animals, um, and I really did like horse books like Mallory and Jesse, although those are not ones that I've returned to reread as an adult, but I read all of the Marguerite Henry books. Um, my cat was named after Misty of Chincoteague. I, um, you know, read like Black Beauty and all of those things and, and really liked those books. And then I had those Briar horses and I remember playing with them a lot, but I also remember not like 
like you just said, I was moderately into horses. Like there were definitely girls around Mm -hmm. us who were like horse girls, like capital H, capital Mm -hmm. G, and who like went to riding camp or like, you know, I like when I went to Girl Scout camp, I would choose the camp that you did one horseback ride, not the camp that was like all horses all the time. Do you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like, so I don't know that I can speak to like what makes you a horse obsessive Mm -hmm. because I was far more obsessed with, as we've established the babysitters club and little shop of horrors and converse all stars, all the makings of my personality. And the swatch watch, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) if anything, you're more of a tiger person. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. I was into tigers. I yeah. remember that when I was a kid, your room was covered in tigers. Yeah. I really like tigers. You add that, you can add that to the personality. Tree. But you can't <laughs> ride a tiger. So, yeah. I mean, you shouldn't. P- people sure do. But as, as, as Netflix's popularity of Tiger King noted. But, um, right. Yeah. I, yeah. I like to, I, I think, I think people in general are drawn to horses because they have these giant heads and giant eyes and are like, people similar in some funny mm-hmm. ways, but then also very different, right? They have mm-hmm. bigger personalities mm-hmm. than like your dog or your cat. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that that's wow, necessarily rude. true, but I think I <laughs> slow down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying this is what I hear from horse people. Mm-hmm. Um, I mm-hmm. like, I think that they're, they're, you know, people relate to them in kind mm-hmm. of a big way. Yeah. Um, so I did a little research into this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I think that there was one, article I read that it quickly dismisses this theory that it's like a very Freudian, like penis envy thing. <laughs> but I think what is interesting is that a lot of these articles that I read talk about how horses are very like big, strong creatures and mm-hmm. that they say that girls are like attracted to that power and empowerment of like one this beautiful you know, creature that's very powerful, but also like if you are a girl who's like, you know, rides horses, it's like a sense of empowerment, like mm-hmm. kind of getting to control this animal in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another point was like, uh, like horses are often like gateway animals, so that they often show off, show in a lot of like fantasy, fantasy books. Um, and like, it's a powerful, like it represents like imagination, kind of like this, uh, other world type of, hmm. um, thing. So, hmm. but I think like, I think the fact that both Jesse and Mallory like horses, is kind of that thing where you're like, if you have the same favorite band, you feel mm-hmm. like, oh, we, we must be the same type of thing. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was. I thought that was cute and very cool. But then it made me think about my first, well, I worked at a magazine called All Girl. And I went through a very long interviewing process with this. I was, you know, new to New York and I was like 23. I had, I was like super naive about just how like job interviews even worked. Um, and in one of my last interviews with editor in chief and executive editor, we were just talking about teen girls and things teen girls like, or so like, you know, whatever. And we started talking about horses. And I started like talking shit on people who like horses. And I was like, yeah, like, you know, like some like girls are like into horse shit. I was like, what's up with that? And they both look at me and they're both like, we love horses. <laughs> and the editor in chief was like, I actually own a horse. 
And I was like, fuck. And you still got the job. Well, what happened is I wrote a thank you card. With a a horse on it? It, I I drew a horse. (laughs) I I drew, it was like one of those like nice crane blank cards. And on the front, I drew like a cartoon horse with like a little thought bubble or like it's a word bubble that said, sorry. And then like, I wrote inside like, uh, sorry, I said I love horses or something like that. <laughs> and then later on, when I got the job, they're like, you know, it was between you and one other girl. And the other girl had gone to like Harvard, <laughs> like gone to like, Col- like Columbia Journalism School and all this stuff. And she's like, but we got that thank you card from you. And they're like, we have to hire this girl. <laughs> Yes. Because they're like, this is so weird. We have to hire her. <laughs> that is so weird. <laughs> I didn't think it was weird, though. <laughs> That's the yes. best part of it. It is such an Anne story. Like, it like would not occur. Just, just as Claudia hasn't had to interrogate her Japanese-ness, Anne did not have to interrogate her weirdness until she <laughs> sent that horse card. <laughs> exactly. Um, so anyway, that's my little horse story. Um, that's really and funny. Then- <laughs> The other things I noted was, uh, I think Mallory is a graphic tee person. Mm. Yes. Because she wears that, like, well, she wears that jumper that says Mallory on it, which mm-hmm. I thought was, like, so kind funny. Of weird. Like, it was very sweet that she wanted to dress up for the meeting, and then what she chose to dress up is so clearly, like, a kid dressing up instead yeah. of a teenager dressing up. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. Are you crying? It was very cute. No. <laughs> Wait, are you hugging a stuffed tiger? <laughs> oh my god, guys! <laughs> Listeners, I even asked them to be nice to me today. There's like fires, and I have a headache. <laughs> We're being so nice. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, Mallory also wears like a shirt that says, "I'd rather be working on my novel." Yeah, amazing. Which I was like, Love should it. we make that shirt? I'm sure it? they exist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's all I really got. Um, Claudia's candy is kind of like you know the usual. Tootsie Pops, gummy worms, cracker jacks, ring beans. Um, the usual. Nothing. The usual. <laughs> the usual. Uh, oh, but I do want to come back to this, uh, that Mallory is not a redhead. I know. I, I mean. My whole life I've been picturing her as a redhead. Same. Like, where did, is she like a redhead on some like initial photo of her? That we just yeah, um, I think I think we have Hodge's Soilo to thank for that. I, I mean, think that she's a redhead on most of the this. covers. Yeah. She's clearly a curly haired redhead in this in the cover of this book. And yeah. there's is that Claudia? Claudia looks like a bee. Yeah. Claudia, <laughs> this isn't the best book for Claudia. Is to be Claudia left handed? Oh. Looks like she is. Also, huh. she looks not Asian at all. She never does on the covers. No, she doesn't. That's funny. I think she looks more Asian on this cover than on some of them. Her nose is not Asian. <laughs> Look at that nose. Yeah, fair enough. That's like, that's like a white person nose on an Asian face. Um, is there any other random notes you guys want to get off your chest? Um, but, the, but the pikes, when they like feed themselves, they have Twinkies, Oreos, and Yodels all in the house at the same time. It seems like yeah. it would be hard to keep all of those in a house with eight children. Well, I thought about that. Glad you asked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so in a Twinkie like box, there's like ten. It comes mm-hmm. with ten Twinkies in one of the boxes. So that's really only going to last you. I don't know. That's like only one one Twinkie per kid, basically. 
Mm-hmm. So I think that's why I need to like have other stuff because like it's not like kids get multiple Twinkies. They're only going to get one, like maybe in a week. You see what I mean? You said that with authority, <laughs> like you were making some really big point, and I don't know what I'm well, you're supposed like, to take why from do, that. Okay. Well, you said, why do they have this, all this junk food? Oh, you're it's saying not they have to like, have variety. Yes, they have variety. Come on. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. <laughs> um, Oreos, obviously. Many cookies in a sleeve. Obviously. obviously. <laughs> yodels. I did not look at the pack of yodels, but I'm assuming also 10, 10 kilobacks. Um, I did not look up a pack of yodels, <laughs> but I'm assuming also 10. <laughs> Yeah. That's my favorite line <laughs> from this podcast. Yeah. Oh, right, we didn't boy. talk about what about Jesse and Mallory's babysitting club. Oh yeah. After basically Mallory's like, F you guys, I'm out of here. After this like horrible test, her and Jesse decide to form their own babysitters club. And they're like, Ugh. They have such an unoriginal name for their club, Babysitter's Club. So they name it, actually, which is pretty good, Kids Incorporated. I like the name Kids Incorporated. And then as you pointed out, that this was probably uh, a take from the TV show, Kids Incorporated. I don't think it's an original name at all. (laughs) It was in syndication from 1984 to 1994. It was a huge kids show. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like this may, it either reflects Anna Martin being under a rock. I don't know that we're really supposed to le- believe that these two 11 year olds wouldn't have heard of Kids Incorporated. It seems so really unlikely to me. Kids Incorporated does not exist in the BSC universe. I, I guess maybe that's, maybe that's the answer, mm-hmm. but it's yeah. just not a show there. It doesn't so interesting. But, you know, big people were on this show. Like Jennifer Love Hewitt, Fergie was on it, Mario Lopez was on it. Like yeah, cream of the crop of the late eighties. Yeah. God. It's a who's who of stars. Anyway, I just you know, I I agree that it's a good name, but I it was not believable to me. But I guess your your fix makes sense, Emily. Maybe it just didn't maybe there are some pop culture things that did not exist in the BSC pop cultural world and the TV show Kids Incorporated is one of those. I mean, Spider the guitarist doesn't exist in our cultural world. Well, yes, I mm-hmm. suppose. However, Dimmel Hasselhoff, he does yeah. exist in their universe. Oh, okay. Can we get to tallies? <laughs> Take us there, Esme. Mallory uh, really notices Christy's bossiness. She calls her bossy three times. Um, well, and she's pretty bossy <laughs> in this book, so. Yeah. Marianne shy once, sensitive once, and Dawn equating Dawn with health food once. So it brings our totals to 14 for babyish, 19 for bossy, 17 for sophisticated. Marianne being shy is in the lead with 20, sensitive eight. Dawn um, is an individual three, Claudia exotic four, and Dawn equals health food seven. Um, and then, you know, we already discussed the kind of purposely racist things that Anna Martin put in here to demonstrate the racism of Stony Brook. So I don't think those count in the social justice count. The only other one I got was um, explaining when waking up Marnie in a babysitting chapter. It's one of those like babysitting explaining passages about how it's important to be gentle when you wake a baby up for a nap because they're not usually expecting a babysitter. But she said explicitly 
you know, they might be expecting their mommy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, or their dad or another yeah. figure Parent, in their yeah. lives. Uh, Mr. Pike is a corporate lawyer. Yeah. Yes. Oh, there was another thing where they, um, I think when Christy was giving the test, she was like, what do you do when a child, like a hypothetical child, and then uses the he pronoun to refer to that hypothetical child? I was mm-hmm. like, oh, why does it have to be a boy child? Why isn't it her? If, if we ever meet Anna Martin, we're going to just like fault her with all these questions that <laughs> she cannot answer. I, I mean, maybe you guys are going to do that. I'll be crying too hard. I won't be able to speak. Yeah. Well, you know, just have your therapy tiger with you. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> hug it. Hug it tight. Hug it tight. I don't even see. I kind of want a therapy tiger today, but I don't have one. Oh. Tell Gary. Hey, listeners. <laughs> Esme needs a therapy tiger. If anyone tiger. wants to start a GoFundMe <laughs> go for Esme's therapy uh, tiger. Okay. Favorite lines. I've got a couple. What are they? One is, as you were saying, Emily, when Mallory disses Claudia, when Claudia's like, oh, like, don't feed the kids junk food. And Mallory's like, okay, Miss Junk Food Junkie. Pretty good. And also a skinny pale rabbit. To describe Don. So basically, my two favorite lines are insults. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> yeah, not a surprise. <laughs> um, I really like when Mallory and Claudia are babysitting at the Perkins house and Mallory lets Chewie in and Mariah yells, Yikes, Chewie's a wild man. <laughs> How old is she supposed to be? Mariah's six. I feel like that's a funny thing for a six year old to say. Yeah, it's good. I also really laughed when the babysitters are having their, like, reckoning with how shitty they were being to Mallory, and they're admitting that, like, none of them knew what a digestive system was. And then, Mm -hmm. like, Claudius asks to Christy, did you know about tourniquets? (laughs) Which I thought was a really funny question. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's... You know, I, we didn't talk about this. We've talked before about how Christy does a good apology. Um, mm-hmm. And I think she did another really good one in this book. I don't, I, um, she did. Where she just is like, she lays it out there. I mean, I wish a lot of adults in our world could just take a apology class from Christy Thomas, but she doesn't, she's just like, yeah, no, we were terrible. We didn't know what any of those things are. And you're a good babysitter. <laughs> could, should you join? Like, <laughs> she just walks it back completely, which I, love i i like all of your favorite lines better mine was around the lucy newton soy sauce debacle that we already discussed so which was it just i don't think the newtons gave lucy soy sauce i Uh just thought it was so funny yeah so i'm sort of um i'm sort of in for either of Anne's insults i like them both yeah great you want this junk food junkie or a skinny pill rabbit uh i like the alliterativeness of miss junk food junkie Fair enough. Let's go with that. Excellent. What should we pizza toast to? A goofy pop culture thing we didn't talk about yet is that the the triplets have action figures for something called wandering frog people, which I was really into, which I feel like is maybe like a Ninja Turtle, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle bastardization. Um, I thought that was funny, but I don't think a pizza toast to the wandering frog people. Like, um, I don't know, like... It's very clear what a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle is, but it's very unclear what a wandering frog person is. <laughs> right? Why are they wandering? 
They just it's look so like weird. Views, <laughs> I know. Confused frogs. Yeah. They're like, like they're like the shrug emoji, but they're frogs. Yeah. I don't know. Amazing. Oh, oh no. their hop secret headquarters, Botticelli and De Rossi are feeling pretty hungry. Man, I could really go for a burger and flies. But who's that piloting the bird of prey? It's the Ducktailer. Have no fear, here comes Bellini and the totally awesome Swamp Stomper. I guess being a bad guy is not all it's cracked up to be. Looks like everything's gonna be crookie dokey. Bird of Prey and Swamp Stomper, each sold separately. Action figures not included. New from Dibley. So, are we really going to pizza toast to wandering frog people or? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know what would be cool? If, you know that TV show we were talking about? Whoops. Whoops. Yeah. That would star the the Pike family. Our instantly yes, famous the first TLC Mallory hit. book. <laughs> yeah, if you know, what if we had like a like a theme song for that TV show? This sounds... so we're gonna pizza toast to to Whoops or to the theme from Whoops. Um, I think to the theme from Whoops. All right, sounds you like know. another task for the band Kid Kit. <laughs> Stay tuned, listeners, for the debut of. <laughs> The theme song from Whoops! Woo! We're very excited. <laughs> All right. Pizza toast to Whoops. Pizza to toast whoops. to Whoops. Seriously, stay tuned for the theme song. We're very excited about it. All right. This episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Condoms or pills or IUDs. Diaphragms or spermicide or sponges, please. Woulda, coulda, shoulda used any of these. Whoops! Thank you to Anna Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Work is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kid. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Work or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both a local independent bookstore and your favorite serious literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org backslash shop backslash stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling doubly generous and you want to rate and review us on iTunes, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl can ask for. <laughs>